How many of you struggle with making decisions? You can raise your hand and say, I struggle sometimes to really make decisions in life. Scientists say that we make up to 35,000 decisions every day. Researchers at Cornell University tell us that we make 226 decisions a day on food alone, on what kind of food we eat, how we cook it, what, how we're going to eat it, all of those things. As the level of responsibility increases, the level of choices we have increase. Each decision that we make, good and bad, have consequences. And sometimes that's why we struggle with making decisions because we're afraid of the consequences. Now, there's different types of ways that people make decisions. Based on your personality, you might be drawn to one of these different strategies or even just tendencies than another. Some people are impulsive. They don't think a lot about the decision they're about to make, but they just go into it. If you give them options, they'll say they want to do the first option until they hear the other options that are mentioned later. Sometimes they only consider the first option that they hear. Second option is compliance. They make, they make decisions based on what they, want, what they think other people want them to do. You've met people like this. Sometimes my wife and I will have whole conversations on what we should have for dinner, trying to figure out what the other person wants to have because we're trying to comply with their desires. Some people make decisions by delegating. They don't want to have the burden of responsibility on themselves, so they're going to try to make someone else make the decision. They'll push it off to others that they trust. Some people try balancing decisions in order to take everything into account. They think of all the different options and decisions that they have to make. Others reflect on decisions. They think about them over long periods of time. It can keep them up at night because they just can't get that decision off of their mind. And along with that, some people avoid or ignore decision-making because they don't want to deal with the level of responsibility that is required. Early on when I was in college and even now as I'm in seminary writing papers, I always struggled to choose a topic for the paper I was going to write. I would flip-flop, I would look at one option for a topic, and I would research that and decide that I didn't want to write on that, so I'd go to another one to the point where I was almost late writing papers because I hadn't decided what I wanted to write about yet. It got so bad that I'd started writing a paper for a particular class. I'd gotten about a quarter of the way through it, and then I realized that I really couldn't write on that topic and I had to change my topic completely. And the reason I was so behind in the first place is because it took me forever to make a decision. And in our passage this morning, we meet Herod Agrippa II. We've seen the name Herod in the book of Acts. If you've read the New Testament, you've seen it in the book of Luke and some of the Gospels as well. This is Herod Agrippa. He's the I believe great-grandson of Herod the Great. He's the son of Herod Agrippa, who we saw in Acts chapter 12. And he comes along and meets with Festus, a man who he knew. And he just happens to stumble across the Apostle Paul and listen to his testimony. And as we look at this sermon this morning, we want to see the life of Herod Agrippa, his background, the decision that he is pressed with, and then what decision he would ultimately make. 
You see, as we look at this man, I think he was listening to Paul's testimony because he wanted to be entertained, because he thought it would be interesting, because he wanted a show, but he didn't realize that by the end of Paul's testimony, he would be pressed with a decision that could change his life forever. The answer to this decision would be the most important answer he would ever give. And the consequences for making the wrong choice would be severe. Our text introduces us to the tragedy of a man who made the wrong choice. If you've ever watched a movie and you've gone through the movie not knowing what type of movie, meaning you didn't know whether or not it was a tragedy or a certain character was going to die. My wife and I recently watched a movie and we didn't realize that the main character at the very end of the movie died suddenly. And we were very shocked by it. And we realized the whole movie was a tragedy about this man's life. As we read this text, it truly is what I'm calling the tragedy of being almost persuaded of a person who made the wrong choice. And so follow along this morning as we watch what starts out as a chance meeting turn into this tragedy. And what we want to see, it's the same sermon idea as last week, because I think these passages couple together so well. We want to see that we should believe and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me spell that out a little further if you're wondering how this sermon can apply to you. If you're a believer this morning then be affirmed in your faith of the gospel. If you know Jesus Christ, remember what he's done for you on the cross and be thankful that by his grace, you came to Christ. We've sang these songs today about how we've been blinded by sin, about how we sought our own way. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, thank God that you've come to him, that you have salvation in his name. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then worship and value Christ over the things that lead you to him. As Paul gives this testimony, we're going to see that the problem with the Jews is that they valued things like the law over the giver of the law, who is God. They valued things like the Sabbath over Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, it is a good thing to think about how we worship and the things we do in church, but don't let those things distract you from worshiping Jesus Christ himself. As we read this text, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, remember to share the gospel with others no matter what circumstance you find yourself in. We see Paul in prison, in chains, arguing for his life, but instead of trying to give reasons he should be freed from prison, He's sharing the gospel with all who are listening. And if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then look at the life of Herod Agrippa and consider the choice that he made in your own eternal destiny. Call on Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as your Savior. So as we look at this text, we want to look at three different men that were met with. And the first one is, who is Agrippa? We're going to ask these questions. First of all, who was Herod Agrippa? We're going to see this in the last half of chapter 25. It's going to tell us some interesting things about his background. Look at verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, 
and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. So we remember from last week, Paul had given his defense in front of Felix. He was the governor of Judea. He was a corrupt man. He really just wanted to monopolize Christianity for his own gain. He's deposed by Caesar and he's replaced with Festus. Festus was actually a moral man and he got right to the point with the case of Paul. But Paul decided that he was going to appeal to Caesar. Festus wanted to send him to Jerusalem, let the Jews figure this out. Paul knew if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die. He's going to be ambushed by Jews. So he says, I'd rather go and appeal to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. So Festus is in a pickle. He has a big question that he has to wrestle with because he's sending Paul to Caesar, but he has no idea what to charge him with. And this is really the question that Festus is trying to answer in this whole chapter and a half. What has Paul done wrong? When I send Paul to Caesar, what am I going to tell Caesar his charges are? Now, we know that the mob against Paul, the arrest of Paul, everything was quite dramatic and Paul hadn't done anything wrong. Certainly, he hadn't done anything wrong by the Roman law. But Festus is trying to get to the bottom of this. And so he has a friend come by. This man, Herod Agrippa II, says he's the king. And we know the Herod family had some control in Judea and specifically Galilee. But they were still subject to Roman rule. This was a Jewish family. We know that Herod the Great, which was one of his either grandparents or great-grandparents, he was around during the birth of Christ. He tried to get rid of all of the different babies in Bethlehem who were under two years old. Herod Agrippa I in Acts 12 killed James the Apostle, one of the apostles named James, put Peter in prison, but an angel helped Peter escape. You remember that from Acts 12. Eventually, he tried to take all the glory that was meant for God for himself, and he was struck down instantly. And eaten by worms. Not a great way to go out. So this is his son, Herod Agrippa II. And as you look at Bernice, you think with her name associated with Herod, this would be his wife. It's really his sister who goes with Herod. And she was also part of this family as well. She lived with her brother. She had a couple of failed marriages, ended up living with him during this time. And both of them were in their early 30s while this is happening. So Herod Agrippa, who we meet here, comes to Festus. And Festus wants Agrippa to help him deal with this situation Because Agrippa could help support Festus before Caesar. What Festus is worried about is sending Paul to Caesar. Something goes wrong there. And Festus would need another important royal person to affirm his testimony about Paul. So in verse 14, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. So he's trying to pin this whole thing on Felix. And it was Felix's fault. He should have dealt with Paul's situation much faster than he did. But because he was trying to monopolize the situation, he was trying to avoid blame from the Jews. But he really knew Paul was innocent. He left Paul in prison for two years. And so Festus says, we need to take care of this. This man has been left in prison by Felix. Uh, 
In verse 15, And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give anyone up before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge that I laid against him. So we saw a lot of this in last week's sermon that the Jews want Festus to make this sentence of condemnation. And if you won't do that, just send Paul back to Jerusalem. Little did Festus know that if they did that, Paul would have been killed. And so he's explaining this situation. It was the Roman custom to allow the accused to meet their accusers. And in verse 17, it says, So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat at the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him, about their own religion, and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So what's Festus saying? They brought him in, we had this trial, and they didn't say anything that convicted Paul. Festus really thinks that Paul is innocent, but he's trying to do the Jews a favor. He offers to send Paul to Jerusalem, And Paul wouldn't go. He decides that he would appeal to Caesar. But notice how he describes the situation. He says this point of dispute is about certain points of Judaism. Now why does Festus say this? It's because Agrippa was a Jew. And as Paul is going to show later on in the text, Agrippa was an expert in Judaism himself. He knew the Jewish customs. Now if you look at his life, He didn't follow the Jewish customs. He had a lot of strange and sinful tendencies, but he understood Judaism being Jewish. So as he's saying this, he also mentions what Paul says about the resurrection. He says these are questions about a certain Jesus. Festus says he is dead, but Paul asserts that Jesus is alive. At verse 20, being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So Festus says, I'm really at a loss. I'm confused on how to handle this situation. He's not saying that he's incompetent, but he says this is a complex situation that I don't know how to handle. And so Agrippa, in verse 22, says, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. He would like to hear this testimony from Paul. But it's not so that Paul could share the gospel with them, but I think it's rather so that Agrippa can be entertained. Look at the next couple of verses and see what happens. In verse 23, so the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. What does that mean? It means pageantry or royalty. They put on quite the festival here to listen to what Paul has to say. And they entered the audience hall with military tribunes. What was a tribune? It was a Roman officer in charge of a thousand soldiers. They had 10 centurions under their command. And it says not only were there tribunes, but there were prominent men 
of the city as well. So there's tribunes there, there's men of the city there as well. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. This isn't a normal trial, but everyone's come to hear what Paul has to say. So in verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write about to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges before him. So we see really what Festus is trying to get down to. He's trying to have something to go with Paul, have a letter, have some kind of charge that would go with Paul to Caesar so that Caesar would know what's going on. Because if Paul goes to Caesar right now, no one's going to tell him what he's charged with because they really don't know. They don't have any clue. And so he says, it's unreasonable for me to send Paul with no letter saying what he's charged with. So we're going to listen to his testimony and get down to the bottom of why Paul has been arrested. So the stage is set for Paul to give his testimony. He is going to give his defense in the next chapter. And both Festus and Agrippa will have to make a decision on this. So what do we notice about Herod Agrippa? He's a ruler. He knows Judaism well. And he seems curious about the Apostle Paul. But mainly for entertainments. Remember, what do we know about Festus even from last week's sermon? He was a good ruler as well in Judea. But if you look at how he describes Judaism, even in what we just read, he calls it a religion. It seems to him to be more superstitious. The Roman mind was very contrary to the Judeo-Christian mind. Thoughts about a Messiah who would come and rule over the world was pretty foreign to the Roman mind. It was also dangerous to them because they worshipped Caesar and they knew that he was the ruler. It was all, they also rejected any idea of the resurrection. And so pay attention to both Agrippa and Festus in the next parts of our sermon. As we next look at who was Paul. We're going to look at who Paul was. Paul is going to give his defense in the next several verses. And we're going to see... A lot of things that we've already noticed about Paul's life, but put into a different way. So first of all, we see his faithfulness as a Jew. Look with me at verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. So Agrippa says he can talk for himself. I want to hear this man's story. Paul calls everyone by motioning with his hand. To listen to his defense. And in verse 2 he says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews. He's been tried by several different people. He's had the tribune listen to him. He's had the Jewish high council listen to him. He's had Felix and Festus both 
that as his judge, as he's been on trial, but he says, it's fortunate that I'm before you. Why is that? In verse 3, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Agrippa not only had a Jewish heritage, but he understood the controversies in the background of Judaism. He was an expert Jew, as some commentators or scholars might say. Now, again, he didn't live that way in his life, but he knew what these arguments would be about. So he says, therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth, spent from beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. So Paul says, you can ask the Jews. I've grown up as a good Jewish person. He grew up as a Pharisee, as we've seen. He lived, in verse 5, it says, They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So he says that these Jewish people were honest, the leadership, the high council, of the Sanhedrin, even the high priest. If they look into Paul's background, they'd see that I was a good Jewish person. I was a Pharisee. I obeyed a strict law. This was Paul's background, and we know this from other passages as well. Verse 6, And now I stand on trial because of the hope and the promise made by God to our fathers. So he not only shows himself as a faithful Jew, but he shows himself as a Jew who believes in Scripture. And this is important for us to understand as we look at Paul's defense. Paul is not just arguing for the resurrection and the hope of the Messiah from his eyewitness account of Jesus, but he's going to argue from it from the entire Old Testament as well, saying that the Old Testament points us to the New Testament. When you look at that phrase that Paul uses, he says, the hope in the promise made by the God to our fathers. What do you immediately think of? When you think of the God of our fathers, you think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Abraham was promised that he would have a great nation, that his descendants would be as many as the sand or as the stars. You might also think of David. It was promised to David that there would be a king on his throne and he would reign forever. But you can back up even further and think about the promises of God. Think about the promise God made to Noah. God promised Noah that he would never again flood the earth. Now we've had some storms lately that have made us question that promise a little bit with all the rain that we got. But God promised Noah there would never be a worldwide flood on the earth that would destroy all life. But back up even further. And God makes a promise to Adam and Eve but specifically to the serpents. Do you remember what he says in Genesis 3? That there would come one from the seed of the woman, a man who would crush the head of the serpents. As we read the Old Testament, we have to read it understanding that they were expecting someone to come and crush the devil, to crush the serpents. In fact, when you read Genesis 4, you look at, Cain and Abel, Eve has an expectation that maybe Cain is the one who could be the Messiah. Now we know that it wasn't Cain. Why? Because he killed his brother Abel. 
And we look all throughout the genealogies in Genesis. Have you ever read Genesis and thought, these are a lot of names. Why are all these names here? What's the common theme? This person lived several hundred years and he died. And he died. And he died. And over and over again in Genesis, we see all of this death happen. And we also see with Abraham some sinful tendencies we see with other people in Genesis some sinful actions as well. And what does this show us? That they were not the seed of the woman. They were not the promised Messiah. So Paul's saying there's this Old Testament expectation and hope that a Messiah would come. And that is why I'm on trial here. Look at verse 7. To which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship Night and day. So the 12 tribes are the nations of Israel, or the tribes of Israel, part of the nation of Israel. And it says that they hope to attain. They are looking towards this promise from God. And it says that they earnestly worship. They made sacrifices. They would sing. They would worship God. Eventually they had the temple where they would worship God. But the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of Christ. The sacrifices didn't save anyone, but they looked forward to Christ who would be the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So Paul says, it is for this hope I am accused, O king. In verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he says, if you look in the Old Testament, you can see that it's clear that God has promised that he would raise the dead, not only that Christ would be risen from the dead, but that all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ would be risen from the dead when the Lord returns. We see that even in the Old Testament. So Paul, again, is trying to transition this court case, this trial, into talking about the resurrection. We know that there was a debate over this. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so in earlier trials that Paul has been in, he's trying to pit them against each other. But Paul is going to talk about the resurrection, not to stir up any controversy, but to point Agrippa and Festus to the gospel. Now look at verse 9. Paul asks the question in verse 8, Why would you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Why would Christ's resurrection be such a mystery to you? And then in verse 9... Look at what he says. I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposition to Jesus, to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he says, if you think Jesus was not the son of God, if you denied the resurrection, then in one sense, I can't blame you because Paul did as well. And he's going to talk about his time as a persecutor of Christians. Paul wasn't just a faithful Jew. He was an opponent of the early Christian faith. We saw this in the book of Acts. In verse 10, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So Paul persecuted the church. He not only arrested Christians, but when given an opportunity to vote, whether they should live or die, he voted for their death. Some of your translations might mention with that voting there some kind of rock or stone or pebble. The way that they would cast their vote is they would have a guilty rock that they would put forward 
to announce someone's guilty verdict. And so Paul says, I voted for their death. He opposed the Christian faith. What he's trying to do is build rapport with Agrippa and with Festus, saying, I know it seems out there. I know that this can be confusing. I myself didn't believe the gospel message at first. In fact, I killed Christians and put them to death. In verse 11, And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. So he says, I would punish them. I would vote that they would be put to death. He even tried to make them blaspheme. You try to push them towards blaspheming God, either by his questions or his statements, maybe trying to get them riled up or angry, or he even tried to twist what they would say to make it seem like they were blaspheming God. Think about what kind of mindset you would need in order to do that, in order to try to make someone blaspheme God. It says, in raging fury, I, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Such a paradox that we see. Paul would go to foreign cities to persecute Christians. But at the end of Acts, we see him doing what? Going to foreign cities to share the gospel. So we see this background of the Apostle Paul. He shows how he's trying to persecute and punish these believers. Now, in connection to what Paul has said, turn to Philippians chapter 3 for just a moment. Philippians chapter 3. And we've looked at this before. But as you consider Paul's past, I think Philippians 3 gives us a great mindset of how Paul views his past works. Verse 4 of Philippians 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul says, I kept the law, I worship God earnestly. As far as anyone could see, I was blameless. But it's interesting what Paul talks about. He doesn't just talk about how he worshiped God. But he talks about the things that would lead him to God. Remember, what was the purpose of the law? It wasn't just so people could show off and say that I'm blameless, but it was to show us our need for a Savior. It was to show us our sinful tendencies. Some people, when they share the gospel, they will take people through the Ten Commandments and say, Have you ever stolen? Have you ever lied? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? And by about the third or fourth one, everybody is showing that they've sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Yet in the heart of sinful man, what do we do? We take things like the law and we twist it so that it's not about God, but it's about ourselves. This is what the Jews were doing. God's law was to show them their sinfulness, but instead they caused controversies about it. They tried to say that they were blameless. They tried to attain righteousness through it. As I think about Paul's testimony, I'm reminded 
of the song we sang right before the message, O Great God, as the first verse asks God to occupy our lowly hearts. The second verse describes not only Paul's condition, but all of our condition before we were saved. It says, I was blinded by my sin. And while Paul was a righteous person by the law's standards, or at least the way they twisted the law, he was not a righteous man in the eyes of God, but he was spiritually blind. He says, I had, the song says, I had no ears to hear your voice. I did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. The wisdom of the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is foolishness to the world. This was Paul's testimony. He had rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who Paul was. He, like Agrippa, knew the Jewish law and customs, but Paul was even more committed. Paul was a Pharisee. He would be one of the ones who people would look at and say, that is how you keep the law blamelessly. He had an expectation for the Messiah. The Jews, even from a young age, would be taught that there would be one who would come and save them from their sins. But yet when Christ came, the Jews rejected him. As we saw in last week's Sunday school lesson, they attributed his miracles to Satan and said, this is not from God, but from the devil. As this section highlights Paul's past, and even his legalistic tendencies, I think it's a reminder for us that there are things in life that are good things, but sometimes we miss the point of them. Think about worship for a moment. It's good to think about worship. It's not wrong to try to plan worship in a way that glorifies God, but how many churches have split over the styles of worship that they use? And what happens in those moments? We stop worshiping Christ, and we start worshiping our own preferences. We say, well, I think things should be done this way. Or I think we should only sing this type of music or use these instruments. We do it sometimes with church facilities. How many churches do you know that have split over the color of the carpets? And they take facilities that are meant to worship God and bring the body of Christ together. And they divide over them. Because of their own sinful desires. It's not wrong to care about the things of God. We don't want to care more about them than we do God himself. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, consider that for a moment. How do I let my own desires distract me from what it is I am to do as a Christian? Do I care more about the externals, about the things that I'm trying to do than I do about worshiping God for his son, Jesus Christ. All of Paul's defense leads him to presenting Agrippa with one, Agrippa with one man, and that is Jesus. So we're going to look lastly at who is Jesus. In verse 12, we see Paul's conversion described. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. He was a persecutor of the church, he would go to Damascus, and we all know the story well. He was given permission to go hunt down Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. By having the authority of the Sanhedrin, he could, he could persecute openly in the city, 
without worrying about the, the own the synagogues that were there. Verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on my way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. We saw in Acts 22, this happened at noon. This was during the daytime, which if you read Acts 9, you really aren't told what time of day this happened. But Paul says this light was brighter than the sun. So this was a blinding, penetrating light that took Paul by surprise. Everyone around them could see it, but only Paul heard this voice and knew what it was saying. He said, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus speaks to Saul, even though Saul doesn't realize it at the time. And he starts asking him, why are you opposing me? Why are you trying to kill Christians? And here we have the phrase that's added, that's not in at least some translations of chapter 9. He says, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You might have read that a hundred times and thought, what does he mean when he says that? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Well, goad was a long, sharp stick that you would use to prod an ox. If an ox wasn't going in the right way, pushing the cart that you wanted him to carry, you would poke him with a sharp stick. And if the ox fought against it, you would poke him even more until they finally submitted and would go in the direction you wanted them to go. So Paul, think about this, Saul at this moment, Paul we know mentioned in the rest of Acts, he's trying to earn his way to God on his own. He's living a good Jewish life. He's trying to earn his salvation through his works. He's persecuting the church, but yet he's blinded by Jesus And he says, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Meaning what? God is prodding Paul to go in one direction that would inevitably lead him towards salvation. But all Paul is doing is fighting against that. He's persecuting Christians. He's rejecting the name of Christ. And Jesus says, isn't this tiring? Aren't you getting frustrated Until the moment where he has this Damascus Road conversion where he's blinded by Christ. To put it in in other terms, Paul couldn't see what Jesus was doing in his life until he literally couldn't see anything anymore. And he was physically blinded. He had been opposing God's will, so God stopped him in his tracks. Maybe you know people like that who... You've shared the gospel with them, but they just reject it. Maybe they're not mean about it, but they just put it off. They don't want to get saved. And then all of a sudden, in one moment, God just confronts them with their sin. Maybe some kind of accident happens. Maybe God just speaks to them in a powerful way through his word. And they have this dramatic conversion. This is what happens to Paul. And Jesus meets him here on the road to Damascus. And then Paul says in verse 15, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. So Paul says, Who have I been fighting against? Who's blinding me at this present moment? And it was Jesus Christ. Then Jesus gives him instructions in verse 16. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. 
delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in faith by me. So Jesus here explains to Paul what his ministry would be. You would end up going into Damascus. You'd meet Ananias, as we know from the other passages that describe his conversion. But Paul would go and he would be delivered from the people who he was working for. They would try to kill Paul, we know, for sharing the gospel. And he would be a witness for Christ. Jesus was the person Paul was persecuting. Now he would be the person that Paul was testifying about. And what would Paul's purpose be? In verse 18, to open their eyes. Think about how ironic this is. Paul is blinded. He can't see anything. But yet he's going to cause other people to see the spiritual realities of salvation that are before them. He would open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Paul uses this imagery of light and darkness a lot in the New Testament. If you read 2 Corinthians 4, when he talks about those who have not been saved yet, he says the God of this world and Satan has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see, but God causes light to shine into darkness through the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ is talking about here. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. They would have their sins forgiven by this salvation. Look at that word Paul uses. It have a place among the sanctified. It's God's purpose, not only in salvation, but in the Christian life, that we're separated from sin and we're separated to God. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Basically, he's saying, hey, if you were blinded by God, If he spoke to you in this way, wouldn't you listen to what he was saying as well? And Paul followed out what Christ had told him from that moment. And ever since then, this was decades ago in his life, he was living the Christian life, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. Verse 20, But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So Paul says, I listened to what he had to say. I witnessed to people in Damascus. We know he did that from Galatians 1 and 2. He also went back to Jerusalem, tried to witness to people. They didn't really like him there very much. He went on and spread the gospel in Judea and then to the Gentiles as well. Paul became a tool, an instrument in Christ expanding his gospel to the end of the earth. And notice what his message was, that they should repent. What does that mean? To turn from their ways, to have a changed lifestyle. Think about Paul's lifestyle, legalistic Judaism, trying to earn his salvation. What did he turn towards? Salvation in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So he encouraged all people to turn from their sinful lifestyle to Christ. Look at that next phrase, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. 
It doesn't say performing deeds, earning their repentance, but rather after they were saved, doing good works that went along with their salvation, doing the things that Christians should do, acting the way they should act, not to save themselves, but to live a lifestyle well-pleasing to God. Verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. He says, don't listen to what they said. They're trying to kill me because I am a believer in Jesus Christ and they do not want to hear my message. Verse 22, to this day I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said had come to pass. He now connects it back to what he said at the beginning of his defense. He said, it's the God of our fathers the hope that we have from him, this one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And now he says, all the way on the other side of it, everything I say comes from Moses and from the prophets. You can see the gospel predicted, foretold in the Old Testament. So if Agrippa knew Judaism, if he was a faithful Jew, he would have to believe that these things were so. He connects it to the Old Testament. Verse 23, what did they say would come? That Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And you say, can you see that in the Old Testament? Yes, you can. Isaiah 53, the suffering servants. Jesus Christ is the lamb slain for sins. Isaiah 42 His great light, this great light would come and shine into the Jews and the Gentiles. So Paul connects this back to the Old Testament. And I think Paul had more he would have said. I think he would have kept on going. He would have kept preaching. But in verse 24, he's interrupted. Look at what Festus says. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Festus has heard enough. He wasn't a bad moral person, at least in the world's terms. But to the Roman mind, this message was outrageous. So he says, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You ever met people like that? They're almost too smart for their own good. They get all into their academic studies and philosophy that they almost can't think reasonably or logically about something. He's not saying that Paul's an idiot, that he doesn't have any learning, but he says, you know so much that it's caused you to go crazy, that you can't see reason. And this seems harsh from Festus, but given his Roman background, as I've said, this shouldn't be surprising. Festus was met with the same message that Agrippa was And he just says it's outrageous. Why would anyone believe this? You're out of your mind. Look at how Paul responds. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but speaking true and rational words. He says, I'm not crazy. And he still is cordial with Festus. He doesn't demean him in any way. He says, most excellent Festus. And I think what Paul says there, and we see this in how he turns to Agrippa, he recognizes in Festus that he is a Gentile person who thinks that the wisdom of God is foolishness. As we said in 1 Corinthians 1, the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those 
who are unsaved. So Paul changes his direction. And he turns from Festus and he says, this guy is not getting it. His mind is closed to it. And he focuses on Agrippa. Look at what he says to him. Verse 26. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. So for whatever reason, Paul seems to be getting the impression that Agrippa is getting it. Maybe he's being responsive. He's nodding. He's not falling asleep during it. He seems to really be catching on to what he is saying. And Paul says, I'm persuaded he's been paying attention. Now that phrase he uses at the end of that verse, it says, none of this has been done in a corner. It means none of this has been done in secret, but it's open for people to look at and respond to. You can plainly understand the gospel and he can make comment to it. So in verse 27, Paul wraps up his message and presents Agrippa with a choice. He brings us all back to him. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Really what he's saying is, do you believe the message of the gospel as it comes from the Old Testament? You say you're Jewish, you know Jewish background. Do you believe this message of God coming from the Old Testament? And he says, I know you're understanding it. I know you are believing And so Agrippa is met with this choice. And remember, this isn't a one-on-one setting. This is in front of officials and leaders and people watching and Festus, who's just said Paul is out of his mind. And so what does Agrippa say? What decision would he make? Would he accept Jesus by faith? Would he reject Jesus and mock Paul? Would he push it off? Well, look at verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So what does Agrippa say? There's actually a lot of debate over what he says. Because there's a lot of different ways this phrase is taken. The ESV, which is what I just read, said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? There's even different ways you can understand that. You could, some take this as saying, it's too short of a time for me to be a Christian. You've not talked to me enough. Good try. These are good arguments. This is just too short of a time for me to accept this. Others take this to say, you've presented such convincing arguments in a short time that almost persuade me to be a Christian. They would say say Agrippa is saying, wow, this is such a short amount of time, but you've said some really good things and I'm almost persuaded. If you have a King James Version, it said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. I'm almost persuaded, but I'm just not quite there. Some take this as sarcasm. They think that Agrippa is mocking Paul, saying, Are you going to make a Christian out of me? Is this some kind of joke? Are you really going to make a Christian out of me? What I would say is, even though I read the SV, I preach from it, but I love the King James and other versions as well, I lean towards what the King James Version says and saying I'm almost persuaded to be a Christian. That he's right there, but he's still not converted yet. And I don't only think that's true from the text, but also what you see after and what Paul says. Look at verse 29. And Paul said, whether short or long, 
I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. His desire, and the King James says, not short or long, but almost or all together, his desire is that everyone would accept the gospel by faith and be saved. And that's where we're left with it. We never get any more indication from Agrippa of his spiritual state. But from what I believe he's saying, he's almost persuaded, but he's not quite there. And Paul says, hey, this is offered to everyone who is here. Festus, Agrippa, the tribunes, the officials, everyone can hear and respond to the gospel message. To close out our text, we see that they rise up. They both say to each other, this man has done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve imprisonment. But because he appealed to Caesar, he's going to have to go to Rome. And that's how the text ends. We don't hear about Agrippa again. We don't see if he's converted or not. And it leaves you wondering, whatever happened to him? I'd like to think that maybe at some point in his life, he wasn't just almost persuaded, but he was fully persuaded. But that's all we're left with in the text. Think about the different ways people have responded to Paul as he's defended his faith. Think about the ways that people respond to you when you share your faith with them. Some people rationalize it away like Festus. They may be good people, but they say, you're crazy. Why would you believe that? You're out of your mind. Some adamantly reject it like the Jewish people. They say this is, they, they take all their work and toil and effort and they oppose the gospel. Some people monopolize it like Felix. They try to use the gospel for their own personal and material gain. And some people are almost persuaded. Some are right on the edge. But for whatever reason, they just weren't persuaded enough. And it's for those people, I think we see a tragedy. That the gospel isn't about being almost persuaded. It's about fully believing that Jesus Christ has come and died for your sins. We don't know why he was almost persuaded. Could it be that he believed what Paul was saying was true, but because of public pressure or Festus just rejecting what Paul said, he doesn't want to fully commit to Christ? Maybe deep down he knew there was truth in what Paul was saying, but it's a tragedy to see that he never fully accepts the gospel. So this morning as we close, ask yourself these four final questions. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? Not almost persuaded, have you been fully persuaded that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, risen again, and that he offers you a new life in him? Don't be like Agrippa. Don't come all the way to the end, but still not repenting and believing. Secondly, if you are a Christian, are you being transformed into the image of Christ? God has not saved us just to save us, but he saved us so that we can be further transformed into Christ's image. Paul talked about sanctification, being separated from our sin to God. How are you doing? Are you living your life, as Paul said, in deeds worthy of repentance? Number three, do you share the gospel no matter what 
circumstances you face. Whether you're in a good circumstance, a bad circumstance, do you share the gospel with others despite your circumstances? Number four, do you worship and value Christ over everything else? Not the things that point us to them, but do you worship Christ as Lord of all? Sadly, some will wait to accept the gospel. Some will push it off, and then they will die separated from God, never fully committing to the salvation he offers. I read a poem that talks about putting things off. It's called Tomorrow, and I want to read it as we close this morning. It says, He was going to be all that a mortal should be tomorrow. No one should be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. A friend who was troubled and weary he knew, who'd be glad of a lift and who needed it too. On him he would call and see what he could do tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up the letters he'd write tomorrow and thought of the folks he would fill with delights tomorrow. It was too bad indeed he was busy today and hadn't a minute to stop on his way. More time he would give to others he'd say tomorrow. The greatest of workers this man would have been tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is he died and faded from view. And all that was left here when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of Paul and his testimony. We ask that you would help each and every one of us to know if we've accepted you as our Lord and Savior. Help us, even those of us who are Christians, to share the gospel despite what circumstances we are in. We thank you so much for the great grace you have given us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.